Well, good morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to read a lot of verses all the way through chapter 7, actually. So we'll begin in verse 11, and then uh, read the entire chapter 7. So it should be on the screen. You can follow along. I read out of the ESV. So if it's a little bit different, perhaps that's, um, that's why. Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. It shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation." Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth, Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two. Male and female went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. Rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his son Sham, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Flood continued forty days on the earth. Waters increased, bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts and all swarming creatures that 
swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils the breath of life died, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That's God's word. And let it never be said that we don't read every last one of them. For generations, people have wondered if Noah's Ark is still atop Mount Ararat in Turkey. Many, many expeditions have been sent. Reports have been made. Photographs have been taken. And even a few alleged pieces of wood have been retrieved. And all in all, taking all that into account, for hundreds of years and all that they've amassed in terms of information and investigation, the presence of the boat on the mountain remains inconclusive. And while some might argue that its discovery would vindicate the faith of Christians, I wonder if it actually strengthens our faith even more. Perhaps the mystery forces us to trust. As we read what seems to be an impossibly fantastic tale, are we going to trust God's word as written? Will God's word be our authority? This is not about throwing out all of reason or emotion or experience, but it's very much about keeping those things in their proper place. What will we do, what do we do when the word of God confronts any one of those things? When we're confronted with something we can't understand, when we're confronted with something that's not proven, we're confronted with something that doesn't feel good. When we're confronted with something that challenges our experience. You know, we live in a culture full of people that have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they have decided to place God's word under the authority of what they can understand, of what they can feel, or what they desire. Now, when it comes to Noah's Ark... It's really no different, but perhaps it's a good indicator of where we're at with God's authoritative word. Seems like when we come to Noah's Ark, we spend most of the time asking questions about what is not written, as opposed to learning from what is. People argue about the size of the boat and the number of animals and how they could possibly be on there the amount of water. Please know that, although I'm not going to spend a sermon explaining all the details, I do believe the biblical story of Noah's Ark is very much feasible logically. And it is very reasonable. But there are more people than less who reject it for very different reasons. Philosophical, largely spiritual reasons. In other words, it doesn't fit what they can understand or what they already know, feel, or experience as authoritatively true. I take God's word for what it says, very simply. It's a real boat, a real flood, a real guy named Noah, and it really happened this way. But it's important to understand that the story of Noah's Ark, though it records the building of a great boat, 
to survive what is a great flood like we will never see again, it's really not about either of those things. The story is about uh, a great judgment on the world of sinners. And that's contrasted with a great salvation of a family of sinners made possible by a great God. Don't think for a second that the great world of sinners is somehow qualitatively different than the great family of sinners that's on the boat. It's not different. What's different is God's grace. And what we see in the plainest of terms, something that makes us really uncomfortable, but I'm going to say it because, well, it's important for us to be uncomfortable. We learn that God does not merely grieve, hate, and punish sin. In a very real way, he grieves and hates and punishes sinners. But, mysteriously, at the same time, he favors, he loves, and he saves Sinners. How can God hate sinners and love sinners? Preview of coming events. That's what that shows us. Let's talk about the story a little bit. The narrative begins, um, as we read in uh, the end of chapter 6, with God reviewing his assessment of the world, which, as we've said, if anyone's going to make an accurate assessment of what you see and then what you don't see, the hearts behind what you see, I think God can do that. God looks at the world and he speaks to Noah, the one guy <clears throat> excuse me, that he has favored, that he has chosen to show grace to, and he says, this is what I see, Noah. Everything's corrupt. Everything is broken. Everything is rebellious. All flesh has corrupted its way, and I'm going to destroy it all. Imagine what Noah felt when he heard that. Don't know if he ever had heard God speak before. And that's the first thing he tells him. Things are bad, Noah. I'm going to wipe it all clean, and I'm going to save you. He then proceeds to tell Noah uh, very detailed plans for a large vessel. <clears throat> they use cubits, nearly 500 feet probably long, about 75 feet wide, 45-ish feet tall. Um, God instructs him to use certain materials to follow very specific designs, structures, make it this way. And then he says, I'm going to bring a flood of water upon the earth, which he's later told is going to include rain, something he's never seen before. Before he does, God says, I'm also going to fill the ark with uh, every kind of animal and creeping thing, and I need you to gather food, every kind of food there is uh, for yourself and for them so that you can survive. So if you just kind of step back and go, okay, what is Noah really told here? Summary version is this. Noah, by the word of God, is told to believe something he probably could have never imagined if he tried. Then he is told to do something that he has never himself done or seen done by anybody else. Who knows if he's ever even seen a boat? 
There wouldn't be a boat built of this same size until I believe the 19th century. He's not told how long it's going to take. He's not even told how long he has. He's not told how this is all going to come together, how the animals are going to get there. He's actually told very little. He's simply instructed to build a boat in the middle of the desert and get in it when God says. Did you realize that this is the way our God works? And it can be very frustrating, disturbing, uncomfortable, inconvenient, a number of other things. But this is the way God always works. As we look at the Old Testament, He never quite gives us the full picture. He kind of gives us a path with fog way down. He's like, go that way. You're like, ah, what's past the fog? Just start walking. He did that to Abraham. We'll read that in Genesis 12. Abraham's told to get up, leave everything you know, leave your family, and I want you to go to a land that you've never seen. He's not told what's going to happen necessarily. You'll be blessed. Trust me. Moses is told the same thing. After having left Egypt because he murdered somebody, and he was a fugitive, and now he's shepherding sheep in the hills. Been doing it for many years. Super excited. God shows up. Moses, I want you to leave this little comfortable sheep flocking herd thing you got going here. Leave the family that you know and now love, and I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to walk up to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, I know you're a fugitive, but tell him to let my people go. Are you serious? This is why Moses complains and argues. Do you know who I am? I can't speak. Just, just go. How's this all going to work out? Just go. Joshua is told, leave the probably what is somewhat comfortable wilderness simply because they've been going in circles and it's what they know. Across the Jordan and I want you to walk into a land and then walk onto a battlefield. Trust me, I'm going to show up there. I know it's a battle-hardened army. I know your guys have never fought anything, but it'll work out. Don't In fact, let's start off. Can you march around the city a few times? What's going to happen? Don't worry, just do it. Like, he never tells us how it's going to work out. When Jesus showed up with the disciples, right? He shows up and he's like, hey guys, follow me and make pictures of men. They're like, boom, drop their nets, go. He doesn't say, okay, here's how it's going to work, guys. So, I'm going to do a lot of miracles. I mean, I'll feed you and stuff. It's going to be really cool. I'm going to heal people, raise people. Um, there'll be some scuffles. You know, be some, some of the teachers won't really like it. They'll kind of frown upon us. Um, but three years, I'm, I'm going to die. Okay? Totally going to die. You're going to be scattered. You're going to, like, totally kind of abandon and betray me, kind of. And then I'm going to raise them from the dead. Everything will work out. He doesn't say that. She says, follow me. Just follow me. You ever heard that from God? Just follow me. Just trust me. Time and time again, God gives his people glimpses of what we're supposed to do. And that's it. But because we trust who he is, and not in what we can understand, 
We begin to walk in what he told us to do, even though we don't know exactly how it all works out or ends. But we trust who he is. We serve a God, I believe, who always gives us directions, but very rarely gives us final destinations. And that's both comforting and somewhat challenging to live. And this is what he does Noah. Do this, do this, do this, and then silence. Noah believed what God said. He not only believed his warning, but he trusted in a promise he made. Hebrews 7, um, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, verse 7, reminds us that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, that's important, not just in fear, in reverent fear, this is God telling me this, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He doesn't just believe the warning, he believes in the promise, the covenant that God makes with him. And without getting too technical, that's what we're talking about, a promise. In verse 18 of chapter 7, he tells Noah, look, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, my promise with you. And in this, we reveal that not only do we have a promise-making and promise-keeping God, but he reveals the kind of promises that he makes and how they're intrinsically and qualitatively different than the promises of men. Today, when someone makes us a promise, we're probably more apt to go, hmm, why should I believe that? I give you my word. What does the word mean anymore? So many people have broken their word. People we've trusted that it's like, whatever. But God's promises are qualitatively different. First and foremost, God is the one who comes and makes the promise. Doesn't have to. Promise is initiated by God. He comes to Noah. Noah never came to him. Noah was not looking for an escape. He didn't know the wrath was coming. God came and said, wrath is coming. Here's the escape. God judged the world And God is the one who made the way of salvation. And the only reason Noah knew when and how to build the boat was because God told Noah what to do. And the promise was, again, qualitatively different than men because it was based on God's unchanging character. It was based on God's unchanging word. You have to remember something that, unlike men... God's word can be trusted. This is why God so often says, I swear on myself. Because God's character is holy. God's character is perfect. And as God makes a promise, it is trustworthy because he is faithful to protect the integrity of his own name. Fulfilling the promise and keeping the promise is about making sure that he is honored as holy and good and righteous and just, not just about blessing whoever is the beneficiary of that promise. God makes promises basically for His glory. And He will do everything He can to protect His glory. But more than that, 
And I think the most important part of this promise, it was established in grace. It was not conditioned on Noah's obedience. God's promise was nothing that Noah could achieve. It was simply something he had to believe. Now, as I said, covenant, the word, is is the first time it appears here in the book of Genesis, really in the Bible, obviously. And covenant will come up again and again, most importantly in Genesis 12 and 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. But the first time that it not stated as covenant, but implied, was with Adam. In the very beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God makes a promise. And this promise, or this covenant, would be best described as a conditional one. And the condition was, look, eat whatever you want, enjoy everything you want, and as long as you obey this one command, you will continue to live. And if you disobey this one command, if you eat of that tree... The day you do is the day you will die. And what did Adam do? He broke the covenant. At the time Genesis is written, so Moses is receiving the story. He is going to use it for for the Israelites. It will be, if you will, their recorded history, their identity. At the time he's received this, he is most likely at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, and he has just received Another covenant. The law. God has made a promise to him. Here is my law. Here is, if you will, my marriage covenant to you. And what he says in this covenant, that it's conditional. And by that I mean, he says, if you obey the law, I promise you blessing and prosperity. But if you disobey my law, if you break my commands, I promise you cursing and judgment. And if you read the Old Testament, you will find out very quickly that Israel would not and could not obey the law. They failed time and time again, and God made good on his promise. If you disobey, you will be punished. So how do you punish an entire nation? How do you spank a nation? You raise up another nation. And so, the Assyrians spank right after, or I should say before that, was the Babylonians spank. Then the Romans spank. Because they could not fulfill the law. They could not make good on their side of the covenant. And this is why the prophet Jeremiah, when they're in exile, comes. And he says in Jeremiah 31, Verse, beginning in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. What is going to be different about this covenant? The difference is the conditions will still remain, if you will, but God will fulfill them both. God will basically keep both ends of the covenant. He will ensure that he fulfills and pays the price for their disobedience, and he'll make sure that there's perfect obedience, namely Jesus Christ. 
And the covenant that Jesus talks about on the last night before He's arrested, the new covenant His blood, is a covenant that is, begins or is first seen in this covenant with Noah. Covenant of grace. A covenant of a promise that God is going to do something and you are just going to receive His blessing. And you don't need to achieve or do anything. You just need to believe. The question is, how do we know Noah actually believed? How do we know he believes? How do you know anyone ever believes this promise of grace? Well, we see very clearly that the grace that saved Noah was the same grace that moved him to do something. He acted on his belief. In fact, according to verse 22 in chapter 6, the last verse, it says that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And that same phrase, almost exactly, but very closely, is repeated again in chapter 7, verse 5, verse 9, verse 16. Noah did all that God commanded. Noah did all that God commanded. Noah did all that God commanded. Noah lived by faith, believing God's promises were true, even when they weren't understandable to him. Perhaps they didn't feel wonderful for his family. Hey guys, next 75 years, we're going to build this big, huge boat in the middle of the desert because there's water that's going to come. I mean, kind of this picture of his kids like, yes, yes, Father, whatever you say, come on. Like, just look at the disciples. We know they're real people. So his sons are like, what? You, who, did you, who did you hear this from? Dad, you've been hitting the softs again. Like, what's going on here? But they believed God's promises were true even when they didn't make sense and they certainly weren't acceptable to the world. God made a promise to Noah, and Noah lived by faith, trusting that promise. He rested in that promise, but he didn't rest. In fact, that rest, like resting in his promise, inspired him to work harder than anybody. Sounds like Paul, right? Guy talks so much about grace, and then he goes, I worked harder than the rest of them. Why? Because he so understood grace. Resting in God's promise inspired Noah to work radically. What do I mean by radically? He worked hard doing something that he had never done, never seen done. And he worked so hard because he had no fear of failure. God had said, just build the boat. Just do it. He just did what God said. You ever think he wondered like, is this going to leak? Is this really going to happen? No, he just worked, okay? God said, I'm going to do it. Resting in God's promise inspired him to work differently, right? And by differently, I mean he had no fear of disapproval. I guarantee you the rest of the world is going, what are you doing? 75 years building this hunk of wood of a structure. They'd never seen a boat before, at least not of that size. Going, that thing never going to float. How are you going to move that thing to water? Mocking him. Making fun of him. Disbelieving him. Did Noah care? Every now and then, perhaps, it would 
cause them to twitch, but ultimately he didn't care about their approval. He didn't care if he lived differently. He didn't care if he acted differently because he trusted in God's promise. And resting in, in that same promise inspired him to work very carefully. Right? He was very careful not to put on, like, hey, let's put on our own design here. Like maybe his sons came to him and he's like, you know what we could do? We could build this really nice deck right up here and we could like have a special door that comes up and we can have a great view. Like he's like, no, God said build it like this. I'm going to be careful to build it just like he said. I'm going to do exactly what he said. That's belief in his promises. Even if like, like this shape, three floors, maybe we should have a fourth floor. That seems like not the best. Nope, God said, God said it this way. How many times do you think Noah spoke those words? Well, God said we got to do this. And God said we got to do this. Resting in God's promise inspired him to work very carefully and very steadfastly. Do you think maybe, because it probably took about 70-ish years to build at least, do you think about year 35, he started having doubts? Got like a third of the boat done going, I don't know. God didn't tell him how long it would take. God didn't tell him when the water would come. He tells us it's going to be 120 years, but he doesn't really tell Noah, hey, until the boat's done. He worked steadfastly, even though he couldn't see the fruit. He trusted that there would be fruit. He trusted that he wouldn't be disappointed if he invested and put that time. It reminds me, just a side note, it reminds me of how many times as Christians we are called to just be faithful and we're never promised fruit. God says there will be fruit, but you're not promised to be able to see it. Will we be faithful in that? Faithful in this, I'm just going to do what honors the Lord. I'm going to do what He said, walk in His ways, not because I can measure the benefit or see the benefit, but because I trust He said there's going to be blessing, there's going to be fruit, even if I never see it myself. Believing that you won't be disappointed. You see, it's not enough to confess belief if that belief does not impact your behavior. Obedience is not merely doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong. Obedience is acting on what God has said because you believe the promises He has made. Obedience is acting on what God has said because you believe the promises He has made. And what's, I think, One of the most sobering points of this whole story is that there is absolutely no evidence that God kept speaking to him for 75 years. God showed up. The world is bad, Noah. I'm going to wipe it all clean. I'm going to save you. Build a boat. Make it out of gopher word. Do it this side, this way. Then nothing. Noah trusted it seems, in the one time God spoke. He trusted his word that much. You ever wonder if the enemy came and said the same things that he said to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say that there's going to be a flood? Did he really say build a boat this big, Noah? Noah trusted, yeah, that's what he said. That's what he said. God didn't speak again, it seems, until the boat was finished. 
And the account of chapter 7 gets a little confusing as you read it because there's some overlapping uh, commentary, it seems. But it's likely at some point when the boat was done, God said, all right, Noah, seven days the water's coming. you got a week. You need to get in the boat. And perhaps the animals were already in there. Perhaps they came and, and that seven days was them getting the animals in and loading everything up. I don't know. It's not perfectly clear, but it seems that it's very possible, perhaps likely, that they finished before the seven days were over and then they sat in the boat. At least for a little bit. Wondering. Right, the city in this ark... You know, it's all these animals around them, right? It's a sunny day. There's probably not a cloud in the sky looking out there. It's going to rain? Looking at each other. Maybe the sons are like, Dad's nuts. We just, 75 years. Guys, 75 years. Who knows the wives, you know, what they're thinking? Right? You know, I can imagine. You, you boys But sitting there, right? But here's the thing about it. No matter how long it was, despite the doubts that they had to have had, despite some of the fears they had and the confusion they had to have, they believed God's promise enough to sit in the ark and wait before there was water. Like, we can make fun of them all the right? Imagine, and, and I imagine people were like, what are you, no, what are you doing sitting in there? God said it's coming, like, next couple hours. They believed God enough to sit in the ark. And that's what would save them. In verse 11 through 15, we read that the rain began to fall. It doesn't seem that it ever rained before this time, and so uh, I imagine it was a uh, super Seattle rain, like had never been seen before. And it says, the fountains of the deep opened up. And that's one of those things where people say, where did all the water come from? And it's interesting that I read an article that I think came out a couple years ago that scientists discovered evidence of a vast water reservoir uh, trapped hundreds of miles beneath the surface capable of filling the Earth's oceans three times over. There's water. Plenty of water. But when it began, you can imagine the feelings that Noah and his family probably felt. Maybe some terror, some fear, maybe some comfort. Okay, God's word's true. If they doubted it at that moment, they were like, God's word is true. The waters continued to rise for 40 days and nights, and it covered the earth. The highest mountains were covered at least 20 feet above that. And God's judgment couldn't be more complete. At the close of chapter 7, it's as if Moses, or the Lord through Moses, wants to make a certain point. It says, more than once, all flesh died. Everything that had the breath of life died. He brought it out, every living thing that was on the face of the earth. 
Every living thing died. Like, it's over and over again. Like, okay. But there's a point there, and we return to it. But these eight people and these animals were saved. And we see, as the waters begin, I think a perfect picture of God saying, I'm the one who's going to fulfill this covenant. In verse 16, we read that Noah obeyed God's command. They're obviously in the ark. And then it says that little phrase, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. And we think about the promises and the covenants that God makes. He is the one to make sure they're fulfilled. He closes the door to keep those that he loves in the ark. God is the one who provides the ark. God is the one who calls us into the ark. And God is the one who secures his people in the ark. Men are not made secure by how good they feel or even trust as they're in the ark. They're secure because they're in the ark. That's it. And God keeps them there. We are held by God in Christ. Jesus saves us. And Jesus keeps us. And no one, according to Jesus, can snatch them out of his hand. It's not a question of whether we can lose our salvation. The question is, can Jesus lose anybody? And the answer is absolutely not. God is the one who keeps that door shut. But even more sobering and perhaps darker for us, God closes in to keep those He loves in, but He also closes the door to others. Not everyone is saved. That's not unloving of God. God is both holy and loving at the same time perfectly. The cross shows us that. He is perfectly just and perfectly loving. He does not save everyone. And as the rains fell and the waters rose, we can imagine how the once ridiculed Noah and those who ridiculed him were now probably crying out for rescue. You can imagine how Noah felt, right? But God, I think, protects him graciously by closing the door himself. For it is God alone who decides who is saved. The Bible says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Which should lead us to a deep sense of gratitude for those who know Christ. But lastly, and I think perhaps most sobering, is that God closes the door at some point to everyone. The sealing of the door reminds us that, you know what, there's an end. There is an end that is coming. And now, in Jesus Christ, the door to salvation is open to anyone who will believe God's promise about how to escape His promised wrath. The door is open. There is one name given under heaven by which men may be saved. Jesus Christ. But the Word also declares that at some point, that way is going to close. That the door will be shut and there will not be reopening of it. 
The end will come. That's sobering to us. It should move us to look at our world differently. It should move us to look at, honestly for me, the sermon differently. An urgency to proclaim the way of Christ to everyone we know. Knowing that when you do, people are going to mock you. It's going to be like talking about building a boat in the middle of the desert. You're like, yeah, this is all going to end. Sure. You may as well build an ark in your backyard and say a flood is coming. Get in the boat. Noah was rejected because of his faith by the people. But because of his faith, he was accepted by the only one that matters. The door that God had opened to him was closed at some point to everyone else. And though the entrance to that door for Noah was full of sacrifice and full of suffering, it was the door to salvation and ultimately pointed to the door. You see, every story in the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus told us that in Luke 24. And the tale of the flood of the world and the saving of Noah through an ark was written to reveal salvation by grace through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. 1 Peter 3 points us to this in a very explicit way. Speaking to those who are persecuted for their faith, he says in 1 Peter 3, verse 13, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Christ as Lord always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you hope in the ark? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins that the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, enduring the corruption that he saw. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why baptism? Why throwing in baptism? It's just about water? No, but it is connected. You need to understand that the act of baptism itself does not save anybody. But that baptism is a symbol of the salvation that has already arrived by grace in our hearts. Baptism is the the tangible way, if you will, the way that, that we can see as we identify with Jesus publicly and beautifully, 
as one who has died with Him and one who has raised with Him. Baptism is a declaration of our trust of what God has done for us. And for those who are in Christ, those who have been baptized, it is a declaration that I know wrath is coming, that wrath is deserved, but that I am saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by being found in Jesus Christ just as Noah and his family were saved by being found in the ark that God provided. And I did think to myself as I was coming here and even last night a bit, like what if this is the the Noah's Ark sermon, right? The last word. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. What if this is it? What what would I want heard? How would I want to see the end come? And what would I want to proclaim? And it's really two things. One, there's a wrath coming. There's a wrath coming. That this world is not all there is, and one day it's all going to end. But there's a way of escape. There's a way and a truth and a life, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you are saved, not by works that you have done, by putting trust in Jesus Christ, dying the death that you deserved, and living the life that you should have. And he gives it to you by grace. See, the story of Noah reminds us that the world is full of sin, but you got to be careful. It's not sin out there. It's sin in here. The first step is to acknowledge that, yeah, the world is broken. Wait, no, I'm broken. I'm corrupt. I'm rebellious. And once we admit our own rebellion and acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves, Jesus says, okay, I can, I can help you. And he invites us into himself, into the living ark. And God's wrath isn't just forgotten. It's not like, hey, no worries. God's wrath is still poured out. It's just not poured out on you. It's poured out on him. But as you're in the ark, you know what's happening? As you are in Christ, and this is symbolized through baptism, that flood, you know what it's doing to your old corrupt life? Wiping it clean. The flood comes in and cleanses every last sin you've ever committed, every bit of dirt that's been committed against you, everything that you have done, everything that you are doing, everything that you would do, cleanses it. And the old creation that was you is washed away. And as you step out of the ark, guess what? You step out into the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you walk in what the Bible calls the newness of life. Never to return to what was. And being saved by grace. You know what that grace does to you? It inspires you to work as unto the Lord. To work radically and faithfully and carefully in all those ways because you trust in God's promises. And all the fear that you had for the wrath to come, which is a genuine fear to have, has been wiped out from what? God's love. I'll close out of a passage in 1 John. 1 John 4 says, We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 
God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. I don't want anyone to leave here without having confidence in the day of judgment. There is a judge that's going to show up, and you want to be on his team. that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love because you still think that you're going to be punished. We are able to love now because He first loved us. My prayer is that if you do not know Christ today, that you will acknowledge that you are just as messed up as the people that we read in Genesis chapter 6. You are broken and you cannot save yourself and God has not left you there just declaring how bad you are and walked away. He said, man, that's bad. Here's a way to be saved. You can be saved today. You can know salvation and forgiveness today. And my prayer, if this is the last sermon I get, is get in the ark Just get in the ark. I know there's doubts and there's fears. I don't understand. Get in the stinking ark and be saved. And for those who do know Christ and you've been sitting in the ark when all the waters receded, celebrating the fact you were saved and never getting out of the stinking boat and working for the Lord, get moving. You don't understand grace. Grace doesn't cause us to sit. Grace causes us to move. Not because it impresses God or makes Him more like... Because He already is impressed and loves you in Christ. That's my prayer. That we will truly understand the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And they will sing as if we truly believe His promises. Let's pray.